Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. With us now, the journalist Steve Call, C-O-L-L, one of the most knowledgeable people anywhere about America's tortured relationship with the Middle East. After 9-11, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10th, 2001. He wrote another book called The Bin Ladens, An Arabian Family in the American Century, and one called Private Empire, Exxon Mobil and American Power, among other books. Steve was the Washington Post's first international investigative correspondent based in London. He's also been managing editor of the Washington Post, dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, president of the New America Foundation Think Tank, and a New Yorker staff writer. He recently joined The Economist as a senior editor, and now with America's relationship with the Middle East again a central issue, he has a new book called The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA and the origins of America's invasion of Iraq. He also had a New Yorker article in December called A Ruinous War and Peacemaking in Gaza. So let's see what we can learn about how the history in his new book perhaps informs the current crisis. Steve, I always learn things reading your work, and when you come on the show, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be back. Just to set the stage about the book first, what does the title mean, The Achilles Trap? Well, it refers to the deep um, misunderstandings of between Saddam Hussein and the United States that unfolded between when Saddam first came to power in 1979 and the invasion that the U.S. led in 2003. That particular phrase reflects the fact that both Saddam and the United States used the Achilles heel metaphor to explain why their enemy was vulnerable when, in fact, both of them had kind of mistaken ideas about their enemy. Um, but the, the real kind of starting point for the book, the reason that I spent four years working on it, was that in thinking back on the catastrophic invasion and the war that followed. I mean, our kind of reckoning has been located understandably in U.S. decision-making. So George W. Bush's choices, the manipulated intelligence, the false intelligence, the media's complicity. But there's another set of questions about where this war came from that have hardly ever been examined. And essentially, they boil down to why did Saddam Hussein sacrifice his own long reign in power, ultimately his own life, for the sake of weapons that he didn't possess. Why did that happen? And it turns out that this question was answerable because Saddam Hussein tape-recorded his leadership conversations uh, over many, many years, and he left a, an extraordinary archive of records that un sadly is not publicly available. but with the help of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, I sued, got a big batch of them, and anyway, that is the investigation that this book uh, seeks, you know, seeks to deliver, which is essentially the other side of the story of where this war came from. Yeah, and so we'll talk about Saddam uh, through his perspective and 
where he went wrong to draw this ruinous war on his country. Uh, and there are lessons from even that for today. Uh, but yeah, you sued the Pentagon. I just want people to know that. You sued the Pentagon to get access to these countless hours of what you call the Saddam tapes. And these were actually tape recordings that the Iraqi dictator made of himself, like the Nixon tapes when Richard Nixon was president of the United States in the White House? Yes. I mean, generally, the setting wasn't quite as intimate as the Oval Office, but they were recordings of meetings that he had with his comrades, sometimes five or six people in the room, sometimes his full cabinet. But yes, his leadership groups that he um, debated issues. I mean, debate it's a, it was a dictatorship. Um, hardly anyone ever interrupted him, but he he talked a lot, and he he was in the end. I discovered, um, you know, he had charisma, and he was uh, with people who didn't threaten him. He could be relatively easy to be around. In Arabic, I presume these tapes, right? Yeah, they were in, they were in Arabic, and they were captured by the United States um, after the invasion, and they were initially. Uh, transported to Qatar, where they were kept in a warehouse, and they were translated for whether or not there was any information in them, like, where's the WMD, that sort of thing. And once the U.S. realized that there was no current intelligence value in the tapes, they began to archive them, and some years later, they released some of them to a research facility that journalists and scholars could access. That lasted for a few years, and then they pulled them back and withdrew them from the public, and they haven't been available since about 2015. So that was why, um, with the help of the Reporters Committee, I had to sue under FOIA to, um, to get a big chunk of them. FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. And just one more question about the tapes before we talk about what's on them. How far back do they go? Because your book goes back to Saddam rising to power in 1979 and the U.S. relationship with him in the 1980s. So do these go back to day one of his administration? They do. I mean, there are some from the late 70s. I'm not sure exactly what the earliest one is, but it might be 77, 78. There are certainly some from 79. And then there's a big chunk of them uh, from the 80s. You know, we don't know what the full array of them covers because there's 2,000 hours. And I filed a FOIA suit for tapes that I could name and I, in order to succeed with my lawsuit. Uh-huh. Um, so there's, there's a question about how much more there is. Um, but yes, I think they basically go back to the late 70s. So 1979. The same year that the Iranian Revolution brought Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Republic there to power, both countries' new leaders had a lot of disdain for the United States, but they almost immediately went to war against each other and fought ruinously for most of the 1980s. Was Saddam the aggressor in that war? He was, yeah. It was his idea, and he launched an invasion in September of uh, 1980, and he thought that it was going to be a quick war. He had misread the tumult in Tehran, um, where there was, in fact, factionalism and a sort of struggle for who would control the revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini had already emerged, but Saddam was hearing that, well, if you go in there, uh, you'll break that regime apart. And he um, he miscalculated strategically. He also miscalculated militarily. He went in 
Uh, his Air Force performed abysmally. They didn't have enough gasoline to reach their targets. Lots of planes crashed, and he got bogged down right away. And then that trench war, um, I mean, there were trenches maybe not as reminiscent of World War One as the war in Ukraine is now, but similarly frozen lines with people just firing across at one another and running at one another without strategic effect for a long time and about a million deaths altogether. You described the U.S. relationship with Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war. Washington was mostly on his side, right? Yeah. In the, the Reagan administration was monitoring the war after it sort of bogged down. And in 1982, they became frightened that Iran was going to break through Iraqi lines and go straight into Baghdad and overthrow Saddam. Now, at this point, Ayatollah Khomeini was firmly in charge. We'd had the hostage crisis, and the clerical regime in Tehran was you know, making a living out of death to America. And so there was, there was a fear that if Iran won the war, overthrew Saddam, and took control of Iraq, that an already threatening revolution would only become larger and more powerful. And so there's this is like the beginning of one of the early chapters of the book. Right. A CIA officer is dispatched in a private jet belonging to the King of Jordan into Baghdad, more or less unannounced, and he brings with him satellite photographs of the battle lines that only the United States can generate in those days because we had kind of a monopoly on eye-in-the-sky technologies. And he brings them into Saddam's regime and he says, look, we're here to help you not lose this war. I know you don't like us. You know, we have our doubts about you, but we have a mutual interest, which is we want you to stand firm against Ayatollah. And for you to do that, you've got to look at these pictures. These guys are about to come through and get you. And so mm. a relationship began then and lasted right through the 80s based on the U.S. providing secret intelligence to Saddam to help him uh, prosecute his war against Iran and uh, denying all the time we denied all the time that we were doing any such thing. But we did it because the United States saw Iran as the bigger threat. But as you recount in the book, the U.S. was also playing a kind of double game. Is that fair to say? It is. And in fact, um, Saddam was always suspicious of these gifts that the CIA was bringing him. He would say, we can see now on his tapes, he would say to his advisors, you know, I don't trust these guys. And I'll bet you that either these photographs are doctored somehow to cause us disadvantage, or they're delivering the same photographs to the Iranians. And he started to get wind of evidence that the Iranians were acquiring spare parts and military supplies, that the Israelis were involved, and he starts talking about it with his comrades. And he sounds like he's a little paranoid. Well, then in November 1986, as listeners of a certain age will recall, the then Attorney General Edward Meese, Edmund Meese, one of those held a press conference in which he essentially announced the Iran-Contra scandal, the essence of which on its Iran side was that the Reagan administration had decided to secretly join with Israel to sell military equipment to Iran so that they could succeed against Iraq, playing exactly the double game that Saddam suspected. And there are these amazing tapes right after that scandal is revealed where Saddam is saying to his comrades, See, I, he's the least surprised leader in the world. Everybody else is shocked by this. He's like, I told you this was going on. I told you this was the way the world works. And uh, in his 
um, deeply felt anti-Semitism and racism towards Jews and the state of Israel, he starts just ranting on on one of these tapes, you know, Zionism, my comrades. How many times do I have to tell you that's what controls the world? And anyway, um, that revelation undid all of the efforts to sort of stabilize the relationship between the U.S. and Saddam that had been undertaken uh, starting in 82. And it's interesting on the tapes, many years later, when everybody else has more or less forgotten about Iran-Contra, when Saddam is trying to explain his hostility toward the United States to his colleagues, he, he refers back to it. He says, you know, that conspiracy that was revealed, that I predicted and that I told you uh, would, uh, was, was embedded in our relationship with the Americans, it's still going on. That conspiracy mm. will never rest. And that shaped his view of the United States right up until the invasion. So on the Iran portion of the Iran-Contra scandal, did President Reagan just want those two hostile to the United States countries, Iran and Iraq, to destroy each other's international strength as much as possible, so he funded both? Well, uh, Saddam certainly thought so, and uh, Henry Kissinger gave him reason to entertain that idea by quipping at some circumstance or another uh, around the time that CIA was just opening its liaison with Saddam that it was a shame that both sides couldn't lose the war. And Saddam, and his, especially after Iran-Contra was revealed, uh, he continued to accept aid from the United States for a couple more years. Um, and there are these scenes where U.S. intelligence officers would meet with their Iraqi counterparts, and the Iraqis would open the meeting by saying, so your, your colleague is in Tehran right now sharing these same photographs with them, right? And that was the tenor of the suspicion. Somehow the material was good enough and confirmable and reliable enough that the Iraqis continued to want it. But this, um, so in fact, Iran-Contra was a one-off harebrained failure in Reagan foreign policy. It was a scheme to release hostages and perhaps build relations with non-existent moderates in the Khomeini regime. But the idea that the United States was capable of such incompetence would never have occurred to Saddam. To him, it was all part of a big master plan that was all aimed at him. Listeners, your calls on Iraqi and American history for Steve Call with his new book, The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. And we can talk about the Middle East today as well. He's written some pretty recent articles for The New Yorker and things in this book though they are not about the Israel-Palestine uh, situation, certainly relate. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call or text for Steve Call. Continuing chronologically, then came August 1990. The Soviet Union had just collapsed the year before. Americans thought there would be a new era of international peace, at least as it involved us. But then came 1990, and Iraq invaded and occupied its small, oil-rich neighbor to the south, Kuwait. Saddam didn't have a, enough local war, Steve, after a decade <laughs> of fighting Iran and losing so many Iraqis? Yeah, well, he, 
he came out of there with this very large standing army that he was worried about. I think he was always looking at to his own vulnerabilities in a country that had a history of coups led by the army. He didn't want to demobilize this uh, force without having the resources to kind of transition them into a peaceful economy. And so he went into negotiations with the richer, smaller Gulf states around him, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, who had lent him money to fight Iran. And Saddam saw himself as the the tough guy in the neighborhood who had stood up to Iran when all of these weaker, oil-rich states um, could not. And they had lent him money, but now he said, look, I fought this war for you. You're safe because my people died. You need to forgive these loans. And each of the countries made a different decision being strong-armed this way. The Saudis more or less quickly said, yeah, you got it. Uh, The UAE, similarly. But the Kuwaitis held out. And so when Saddam prepared for the invasion of Kuwait, in plain sight, the Americans could see what he was doing. Everybody advised then-President George H.W. Bush that this was just a bluff. It was all about the money and that the Kuwaitis would give in and that money would change hands and there would be no war. And it turned out, now we can see through the records and the tapes, that Saddam all along had actually planned to loot Kuwait. He wasn't, at a certain point, he gave up on them and loan forgiveness. And he got it in his head that he should just solve his financial problems by taking over this very rich, very uh, oil-endowed small emirate that had no defenses to stop him. And that's what he did. And it set off a huge world crisis. The big and, pivot, I, right? and I think Jim in Ocean County has the perfect question to tee you up for the next chapter in that um, pre-First Gulf War story. Jim, you're on WNYC with Steve Call. Hi. Morning. Yeah, I was, there's the um, April Glassby communique that uh, there's a lot of speculation about. And um, the, uh, if you want me to explain it, it was about where Bush Sr. sent the ambassador, April Glassby, what seemed like a, a green light, or at least Saddam Hussein took it as such, to resolve whatever border dis- uh, differences. A green light to I invade put, Kuwait. Yeah. Well, the Ku- apparently it, they had the Kuwaitis had done diagonal drilling before uh, into Iraqi oil, and Saddam Hussein moved some tanks down and and uh, re- saber rattled, and they backed off. And then uh, the communique apparently was said to be. Uh, something, well, you resolve that however you see fit, and that he perceived, Saddam Hussein perceived that as, well, Took I'll go that ahead. As, as a green light. So the April Glaspie story figures prominently in this part of your book. Steve, how do you see it? Well, I went back, uh, you know, very much in kind of historian umpire mode, just calling the balls and strikes, and went back through all of the materials, including the new materials from Saddam's side. And I, I concluded and tried to just lay out for the reader. Um, it's a very pacey kind of thriller um, going right up to the moment when his tanks cross into Kuwait, um, even from a distance. But I conclude that April Glaspie has been wrongly maligned um, as, the, as the diplomat who somehow gave Saddam a green light for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bush administration, Bush the elder, um, was soft on Saddam in the months leading to the invasion. In fact, signaled repeatedly a 
you know, almost the opposite of a deterrent signal. They wrote, the president wrote him letters um, that were, you know, they made mention of following international norms and not invading neighbors, but there was nothing like the kind of deterrence message that American governments send when they really want to get somebody's attention. And the instructions that April Glaspie brought into this meeting that became famous um, were written for her by the Bush administration, approved by the Secretary of State. They were just talking points. And everything she said was transmitted to her from Washington. She was a professional diplomat, the first really one of the pioneering uh, women in the American Foreign Service, a very capable Arabist, um, fluent speaker, had a better sense of who Saddam was than a lot of people in Washington. And she just did what ambassadors are supposed to do. She read out the talking points that had been given to her essentially by the White House. And so after this disaster happened and the Bush administration was understandably embarrassed that this had occurred um, without you know, proper deterrence or warnings, they just threw her under the bus. And really, when you go back through the record, it's completely unjustifiable. Now, as you describe in the book, one would have thought that George H.W. Bush would be the most qualified possible president to deal smartly with Saddam Hussein. Bush had been Reagan's vice president for eight years. He had been UN ambassador. He had been the CIA director, for heaven's sakes. But did we have two generations of President George Bush's who thought they knew Saddam Hussein's brain but really didn't? <laughs> uh, it's a Yeah, it's a nice way to ask the question. I... Look, I mean, George H.W. Bush was a highly qualified foreign policy president. When you watch him doing his job with Saddam in the run-up to Kuwait, I mean, you sort of feel, uh, I felt a little sorry for him because he was doing what you sort of want your president to do. He was picking up the phone and talking to everybody who knew Saddam and asking them how he should interpret what Saddam was doing. And part of the problem was he got just really bad advice from King Hussein of Jordan, from Hosni Mubarak um, in Egypt, from King Fahd in Saudi Arabia, everybody who really lived with Saddam, who were threatened by Saddam, and who were trying to interpret his bluff, they all told Bush, don't worry about it. We got this. It's just a show. The Kuwaitis are going to pay him off. Nothing is going to happen. And every time Bush would say, are you sure? <laughs> like maybe mm. we should do some military exercises. They say, really, George, we've got this. And, uh, you know, you want your presidents to take advice from allies and regional experts. But in this case, they had it all wrong. It cost them, um, at, you know, as much as it cost the Americans eventually. And so jumping ahead to the second Iraq war, would it be accurate to say that one thing you learned from the tapes was that Saddam never thought the United States would invade in 2003, despite everything that George W. Bush said and did to prepare for a war? Yeah, that was part of his Achilles trap metaphor, was that he believed, um, based on his experience during the 90s, that the United States was never going to take the risks to its own soldiers, to its own population by invading on the ground. He had been, you know, targeted with cruise missile strikes, periodic bombings, all very precise and calibrated. And so he had concluded that the United States was casualty averse and that it had an Achilles heel, as he said in a speech, which was that it, it just wasn't as muscular as it appeared to be. And there was another factor 
leading up to 2003, the period between 9-11 and 2003 is absolutely fascinating. And the, and the new materials, um, are, you know, I found them. I, of course, I'm very excitable about this stuff, but I found <laughs> them absolutely stunning. He had He was in his 60s now, and he was no longer the person that he had been in 1990 or 1980. He had become obsessed with novel writing. He was spending many hours a day handwriting his four novels, and he had kind of lost interest in military affairs. Between that and his complacency mm. that the Americans would never come in on the ground, he was very – and he also became, you know, a sort of an annoying pundit after 9-11, just bloviating all of the time about America and got what it deserved and so on, completely oblivious to the idea that he was vulnerable to the aftermath of 9-11. And of course, he was innocent of ties with al-Qaeda. So when those accusations came, he was he was just nonplussed by them. And visitors would come through and he'd say, I, you know, of course they're saying this stuff because they're always out to get me, but they're not going to invade. And he was very late to recognize that uh, George W. Bush was, in fact, uh, in, intended to invade and, and, and that he wasn't afraid of the potential um, casualties that the invading force would incur. I take it from the book that you thought Saddam Hussein's novels that he was more interested in writing then than paying attention to world affairs were pretty bad. And in one of the ways that kind of revealed his lack of um, perception about other players on the world stage because his characters weren't subtly developed. Yeah, I I was I benefited from this amazing scholarship by this uh, woman named Hassan Al Haura, who's a Saudi literature student. I mean, PhD student in the UK, and she she wrote these this amazing thesis about his novels. And th- one of the things about them is that he had earlier developed the novel as one of his most prized propaganda tools during the. Iraq, I mean, the Iran war, he commissioned hundreds and hundreds of pulp novels about Iraqi heroism. But by the late 90s, he had decided to write himself, and he was sort of the writer-in-chief. He gave out subsidies to other writers. He had them come into his office. They would trade notes. People would recite poetry, usually about him, always flattering. He had one of his novels turned into a musical and then a 20-part television series. So he was just immersed in this this world. And I'd interviewed one of his um, editors, and he was describing how, I asked him, like, how did Saddam write? What was what were his sentences in Arabic like? And he said, well, they were kind of like the way he speaks. They were very rambling, always doubling back on themselves, dropping in parentheticals. If you followed the snake, you could eventually discern what he was trying to say. But as as you know, literature, they were really hard to track. And so we would we would edit them. We would make suggestions. That's notionally what he was asking us to do. And then he would never take our suggestions. And at a certain point, we thought he was getting very annoyed with us. So we stopped suggesting any changes. <laughs> Sounds like a dictator as novelist. <laughs> it's the last thing I thought we would t- talk about on the radio show ever, a book review of something written by Saddam Hussein, but there it was in your book. So, the, the, you know, it's been more than 20 years. We have a whole generation of listeners who are not paying attention to the news yet on 
The main reason for the war in Iraq was that the U.S. thought Saddam Hussein was enough in cahoots with al-Qaeda that he would share biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons that he didn't actually have that al-Qaeda would use for attacks much worse even than 9-11. Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, that was certainly the way the war was, one of the narratives that was used in public to justify the war. And the WMD was the heart of it because after the Kuwait war, during the 80s, of course, you know, many of your listeners will know, Saddam used chemical weapons uh, extensively against Iranian troops, but also against his own Kurdish population when it rebelled against him. And um, then after the after he was expelled from Kuwait and essentially lost that U.S.-led war, the U.N. united in ordering his disarmament, and inspectors were sent in to essentially deprive him of any chemical, biological, nuclear weapons or the missiles to deliver them. Um, and what we now know is that in the face of these inspections, Saddam secretly destroyed his stocks in the summer of 1991. He ordered his son-in-law to basically take the stuff out into the desert and pour it into the sand. And then he lied about it. He didn't come clean. So he both complied, but then he created the impression that he was hiding something. And this essential problem led the international community across the whole 1990s to suspect that Saddam was still harboring dangerous weapons. So after 9-11, that was the peg that the Bush administration seized on to pressure him. He said, you've got to come clean. You've, you've, you're still out of compliance with our demand that you disarm of these dangerous weapons. And as you say, the existence of such a stockpile, if it had been in Iraq, took on new dimensions after 9-11 because everybody was afraid. Tony Blair, the prime minister of Britain, a chief among them, was afraid of this this imagined coming marriage between WMD yeah. and uh, jihadi terrorism. But then, last question about the book, and then I want to spend our last few minutes asking you about some of your recent writings about the Middle East now. Uh, apparently, Saddam thought the CIA knew everything about everything. So did Saddam mistakenly think the U.S. knew he had no weapons of mass destruction, even though we were saying he did? Yeah, exactly. And that's part of why he thought honesty didn't pay. Why should I cooperate with these inspectors? Because in his thinking, based on his experience with the CIA in the 80s and his just general assumption that they were omniscient, they already knew that he didn't have the weapons. They already knew the truth. So when they accused him of possessing these weapons, what did that mean? It meant that they were just using that story as a pretense to pressure him or perhaps eventually to attack him. And so what he says, and you can see it in his conversations, he says, well, then why should I play that game? There's no point in playing that game. I can, I can have my country without these inspectors and all of this meddling, or I can have it with them, and I'd rather have it without them. Mm. So I'm just not going to play that game. Boy, he got that wrong to the price of, what, maybe 200,000 of his fellow Iraqis? Eventually, yeah. And of course, you know, he was uh, captured. His sons died in the combat after the invasion. He lost his family. He lost his own life. He has a couple of surviving daughters, maybe one son. But basically everything that he had built for 20 years, he lost because of his own miscalculations. 
We have a few minutes left with Steve Call, whose new book is The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. But you also wrote an article in The New Yorker in December about how temporary ceasefires don't end wars because they don't resolve underlying issues. According to the news this morning, we may be on the verge of another temporary ceasefire in Gaza. Does your deep knowledge of the region from decades of reporting suggest to you how this might actually resolve? Um, yeah, I that um, finding was a political science finding, a study of hundreds of civil conflicts in the last 20 years. And these, you know, political scientists demonstrated, I think, pretty convincingly that temporary ceasefires and prisoner exchanges don't correlate with the end of conflicts because they don't resolve the underlying issues. So if you apply that to Israel and Gaza, um, the underlying issues are about territory, Palestinian sovereignty, um, the history, the search for justice by Palestinians, the search for security by Israelis, big subjects that have been um, you know, at the center of international attention for decades and are still unresolved. So what's different this time, and the reason I took a deep sigh when I realized the depth of your question is that these circumstances, both in Israel and in Gaza, are without precedent. So how, um, you know, how the search for a Palestinian state can be pursued in the aftermath of this devastating war um, is just unclear to me. I think there was a period in the fall where there was a lot of sort of easy kind of clarity or optimism among professional diplomats, and you want peacemakers to do their work, and they only have so much to work with here. But it was, well, we're going to, we're going to find a way out of this through a two-state solution that is reinforced by Saudi recognition of Israel and a new deal between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and somehow Gaza will be reconstructed and reimagined through that and so on. In the abstract, on paper, it all makes sense. But in the reality of what's happened, both inside Israel to Israeli politics, to the settler movement, and to the Palestinian population in Gaza, now literally decimated, um, a tenth of the pre-war population or more dead, um, to construct such an abstract formula just seems like it's just unrealistic. So I, I, this time around, I would tend to say that a ceasefire, a prolonged ceasefire, um, a, an end to violence is necessary not because it's going to lead to a permanent solution, but because um, it ha something has to change and it can't change until the violence stops. Well, Biden is certainly rolling the dice on his scenario, as it's been reported, that this temporary ceasefire, maybe because both sides are exhausted, I don't know, um, will lead to a grand bargain that includes a Palestinian state and other Arab states getting involved in helping um, to create a peace and enforce a peace. It is so complicated. But, you know, an article in Vox recently said and this kind of relates back to your book, that this war may become an even bigger history-defining event for the Middle East and the U.S. relationship with it 
then the Iraq War, a real era-defining event, considering the massive Gaza death toll and destruction of the territory. Having just written a book on the Iraq War, can you compare and contrast from a sort of regional but also U.S. relationship standpoint? I mean, I think they are both uh, huge convulsions in the course of American foreign policy and in the course of the Middle East. Um, the difference, obviously, uh, is that in Iraq, we sent soldiers into harm's way. They became entangled in an impossible um, insurgency. We lost thousands of lives, several thousand lives, and then you know, 20,000 wounded in coming home with traumatic brain injury and lost limbs, returning to communities. And I think changing American politics. I think the Iraq War changed American politics because our voluntary army um, saw the, the hubris and the, and the errors of their elites and came back to America and, and developed a politics of anger and, and change that we've been living with uh, gradually since you know, 2016. So I, I think that impact is distinct for the United States. Um, God willing, we won't be going to war over um, the current conflict. But I think for Israel and for Palestine, the war is at least as disruptive as the Iraq war was for, for us. Would you say like the first George Bush should have been positioned to assess Iraq more accurately? Biden, with all his foreign policy experience, should have been better placed to prevent or manage this situation? And this is the last question. Yeah, I mean, experience, unfortunately, um, doesn't equip you to manage something that is entirely, that is that represents a departure. And I think in Bush's case, he had trouble um, seeing that the policy of accommodation with Saddam had run its course and that Saddam was about to break out of all of his assumptions. And uh, Biden, obviously, as we know, uh, came to October 7th with decades of experience and conviction and had difficulty um, adjusting to what was entirely different about both the October 7th attacks, the way they played out inside Israel, and then uh, the scale and the nature of Israel's response. Steve Call's new book is The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing it with us, Steve. I really appreciate it. Brian, thanks so much for having me.